welcome to What Were You Thinking, a podcast in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival. My name is Laura Round and I'm joined by the wonderful Baroness Jenkin. For decades, Anne has campaigned on getting more women into Parliament and in 2005 she founded Women to Win with Theresa May, which campaigns to elect more Conservative women to Parliament. Anne is fairy godmother to many women in Westminster as she has helped many with their journey into elected office and she's also encouraging countless more to stand for election. But in this episode we also talk about the worrying retention rate of female MPs as well as her mission to tackle all kinds of waste, her passion for international development and the need to tackle obesity. I thought it would be fitting to take the opportunity to give a shout out to the cross-party 50-50 Parliament campaign who run a brilliant initiative called Ask Her to Stand. Now, for whatever reasons, evidence suggests that women need to be asked three times to even consider standing. Through 50-50, they can get involved and sign up and they'll be guided through the entire process with a buddy and bespoke support. It really is a great support network. Now, if you know a woman who you think would be great in political office, make sure to tell her and ask her to stand, or maybe ask her three times. Baroness Jenkin, Anne Jenkin, thank you so much for coming on What Were You Thinking? Um, I know I was very keen to speak to you around the anniversary of Women to Win, but unfortunately that didn't happen, but I'm very pleased that you're on now. Many things, many areas I want to cover with you. But first off, why don't we start off with hearing a bit more about the individual that has impacted your life and your thinking and and possibly even your politics? Well, thank you, Laura, and thanks for inviting me on the show. Um, so my, my person, my most influential person, really, was my grandmother, um, who was herself an MP, elected in 1937. She was the 33rd ever woman MP and the only Conservative woman MP elected in 1945. So we think things are bad still today, um, relatively with, uh, with Conservative women MPs, but considerably worse then. But she also um, had a rather exceptional father who was a Liberal MP elected in 1906, who was called Willoughby Dickinson. And he introduced the first women's suffrage bill of that parliament and won every year in the run-up to the war because he, his sister was a doctor and he just couldn't you know, get his head around the fact that he had the vote and she didn't. And um, it wasn't a very fashionable course and it certainly wasn't one that did his career any good. But he plodded on with it and he was a teller um, at the, uh, on the day when the um, representation of the People Act, which finally brought women the vote, um, <clears throat> was, was introduced. So, and I didn't really know about that until I started reading up about suffragettes in school and I read Christabel Pankhurst's book and there he was and Millicent Fawcett said, we always knew he was our one true friend in parliament. So wow. I've got this rather extraordinary heritage because not only was my granny an MP and then subsequently a peer, but her husband, so my grandfather, my, both my mother's parents were MPs and both peers, actually. And my grandfather was, um, was very much Stanley Baldwin's right-hand man and a very key sort of moderniser uh, when party chairman in the 1920s. Uh, and in fact, at our Women to Win anniversary that you alluded to, our 15 years, 
um, Stephen Parkinson, who is the director of the Conservative History Group, gave a little lecture about how um, the, the position of women in the party up to when we launched Women to Win. And he included both my grandparents in the slides. I think he was being nice to me to have them there, but I felt <laughs> incredibly proud um, to come from such an extraordinary uh, heritage, really. That is extraordinary. That is, uh, that is a wonderful heritage. And um, it explains a lot because you, I think it's fair to say, are a bit of a fairy godmother to so many MPs, female MPs in particular, who are currently in the House of Commons or have been in the Commons or, you know, also many women who want to end up in the House of Commons. And um, yeah. uh, I've, I know so many women personally who adore you and sort of treat you as, you know, describe you as a bit like their second mother <laughs> yes and it's it's very special so you you know you you founded women to win as you say 15 years ago yeah um how did that all come about well it's interesting because um i mean you know you look back on my heritage and you say well that was obvious but it didn't feel like that at the time i mean it was simply that you know we'd plodded along at about you know seven percent nine percent of the parliamentary party when Theresa May was elected, not that long ago, there were 17 Conservative women MPs. Well, today we've got 87, but um, we were 9%. It was, you know, it was rubbish. When she was elected, there were 101 Labour MPs at the same election or looking opposite. And um, so I think, she, I mean, she and I both had a, basically after the 2005 general election, we've made no progress whatsoever. And I had written an article um, because somebody, somebody in the press came to me and said, you know, do you think the system is fair? I mean, I fought a seat in 1987, didn't suit me and I didn't want to go on with it, but I'd sort of taken a bit of an interest till then, uh, since then. But um, they, they came and, and um, so I had to think about how best we could improve the situation without going to all women shortlist, which had been the labour mechanism, but it wouldn't be the conservative way. So I wrote an article suggesting what subsequently became the A list or the priority list or whatever you want to call it, where the candidates list was narrowed to the, the top 100 candidates, which had 50 men and 50 women. And, and the associations, the conservative associations were expected to pick from those, uh, those candidates. Uh, and it was quite controversial at the time, but it was a mechanism that worked for us. But that, that in a way was implemented after we launched Women to Win. I remember having the first conversation with Theresa May about it at, um, at a, an event we were at on the day of 7-7. There are certain dates that stick in your mind. And we said, we've got to do something. Nobody in the party seems to think this matters. And this yawning gap between us and Labour, and it was, it was really beginning to show. And, it, it, you know, Tony Blair was doing great things for women and, and we were in the dark ages. So we launched it um, just two weeks before David Cameron became leader. He himself, his first speech was that he wanted um, the parliamentary party to better reflect the country he sought to serve. And in a way, we had the sort of, um, you know, we were given the get-go, really. So we thought we would have to be a, a sort of, you know, pressure group kicking the traces over. But we actually were encouraged by him uh, from the beginning so mm. we made steady progress from that nine percent just by going out there and talking to people and getting people and helping and supporting and encouraging and we know women present differently they need 
that uh, tap on the shoulder. And, you know, a boy knows at about seven that he's going to make a wonderful MP. A woman will wait till she's, you know, 45 and somebody will say, you know, you would make a great MP. And she's like, no, what? Why? I'm not a, cam- I'm not a politician. And then you say, yes, but you campaign successfully to move the bus stop or keep the children's playground open or whatever it might be, mm. you know, give it a go. But then um, we also know that a man will fill in the form, uh, which you have to do to get on the candidates list uh, within a week or whatever, two weeks maybe at maximum. And a woman will wait six months, getting on for a year. Um, and I used to meet these women around and about. And I said, have you sent your form in? Oh, well, no, I mean, I know I can't win the lottery if I don't buy a ticket, but, you know, I'm just still thinking about it. So they need that extra support and encouragement, which is really what I was doing in the early days in particular. And that has also led to this very successful campaign called Ask Her to Stand, which is rooted in that theory that you just describe of women need that nudge and need to be asked more than once, (laughs) possibly 20 times. Yes, yes. (laughs) Never let them slip through the cracks. Keep going all the time on them, yes. Well, I I mean, interestingly, and I think this has made a bit of a difference, there have, in those intervening years, come a few external players into the space and uh, they're very welcome. There's the Parliament Project, which is, you know, these are non-party political. And there is the 50-50 campaign run by the indefatigable Frances Scott, who I met when she just uh, was starting up. And um, she, well, she's a sort of obsessive campaigner really, but it has helped to move the dial a bit because it's non, it's all party, but there is also a conservative branch to the 50-50 campaign. And they, they really started the Ask Her to Stand, but they did a campaign two or three weeks ago. Uh, they, they launched, a, they have a particular day, which is, I think, the day when women were first, um, the first woman took her seat. I think it's the, that um, anniversary. Mm. The Prime Minister said in his video that he wanted a 50-50 parliament, which is very encouraging. And um, so it was originally their campaign, but we, we've all piggybacked on it. And I'm told that 400 new women have approached the party to start the journey but most of those women will need to be as i as i'm just saying sort of encouraged not to give up so yeah. um part of my you know daily nag is to cchq to say to them have you are you in touch with them or are you in regular touch with them and and signposting how to do it and what they should be doing um so that our pipeline is better because i'm also got concerns about retention of women mps we lost quite a few sadly at the election last year who, who retired and half the parliamentary party, half of the conservative women parliamentary party today were elected only a year ago. And we have to have a better uh, retention rate than that going forward because that's why the pipeline is so important um, because yeah. otherwise you can't have the promotion through and into the cabinet. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that is, that is crucial. So, I mean, one of the big things I've been doing during lockdown is, is just making sure that the women MPs, um, because there's not much support from the centre. I mean, I think a lot of the blokes are finding it hard, have been finding it hard too. But, you know, you get elected, it's all very last minute. You're trying to, you know, get your feet under the desk and, um, you know, get to know the job and the area and all the rest of it. And then COVID happens and you're plunged into this, unknown world with new staff and a new job and all the rest of it and not I think enough understanding from mm, well 
going to say HR, which doesn't exist. Uh, <laughs> this is this is a very tough experience for everybody. So I have been, you know, working hard to make sure that they all feel properly supported and that somebody cares about them, which I do. And based on your experience, what do you think the reasons are for women to just to to not be so sure about whether to to go into politics in the first place? And secondly, why is the retention rate so low? Well, um, I mean, I don't think it is so low. Last election was a particularly exceptional one, and the, most of them were. And we, and by the way, proportionally, it was the same, you know, with the men that suddenly that felt that they didn't really want to go on with it. It was a particularly brutal period uh, before that, the whole Theresa May government and Brexit and all the rest of it. And I think quite a lot felt very disillusioned and didn't, you know, thought that they had a new career in them and that, they, that was the moment to have a break from it. But we do miss, you know, Amber Rudd and... Um, Justine and, and pe- people with real experience, Anne Milton and Margot and those sort of people, as well as, you know, sadly losing people like Seema Kennedy, who'd only been there three years, but was already beginning to make a mark. So, you know, we have to make Parliament a kind of nicer place and better place. Um, why do I think the barriers? Well, so I, I think most women don't even think about it as an option. And, uh, and that's why the Ask Her to Stand stuff is important. And um, and actually, I think that, you know, women coming in mature is a good thing. I mean, there's an MP called Sarah Dines who first fought, who's got in last time, uh, who first fought in 97. And then she's had a complete break. Her, ch- her children who were babies are now at university and she's come back in, you know, 20 something years later, um, you know, and ready for a new career. So I do think a second career is is good. My, um, my great friend and... Um, I'm really one of the best uh, women MPs, Gillian Keegan. I met at the theatre. And if our yeah. mutual friend hadn't said to me, oh, Gillian would make a great MP and I could tuck her under my arm and, and teach her, basically, give her an apprenticeship. Because, you know, go, coming from a 28-year career in business into the political world is, you know, quite a shock to your system. Yeah. But, you know, she would never have thought about it if that person hadn't, hadn't mentioned it to her. That so story I think that not is... Thinking, it is it's now well known isn't it but um but it's true and i think that there's you know of course that all the talk about social media and bullying puts people off they worry about women off in particular they worry about their kids and their families and how they're going to manage it i think that idea about how they're going to cope with the logistics of it um it also puts them off until they speak to somebody who's been through it or done it and, and knows how to manage you know manage it in practical terms yeah the geographical uh, distance as well, you know, if your seat is far away from Westminster. Yeah. That's you have to work it out tough. and you have yeah. to work out and you have to have, you know, a supportive partner if you've got family. And um, but it, it can be done. And, you know, I've got lots of examples of people who do it successfully. And there are, you know, they do have long recesses which do coincide with school holidays where it's much more flexible. So yeah. it's all manageable, but people, I think women look at it. And also women are risk averse, Laura. Um, a man will just say, okay, I'll, I'll move to Bolsover or wherever it might be, probably without any discussion uh, with their families. Uh, <laughs> I'll just tick that box and off I'll go. Whereas a woman has to, you know, they, they, they want to know, they want more certainty in their lives. And of course, political politics is a very uncertain lifestyle. Yeah. So they don't know if they want to know that they can win the seat, they can hold the seat. 
that there's if they work hard and do a good job there's some sort of progression through the political ranks and that doesn't happen for sure um so i think all, all yeah. of that uncertainty adds up to a, a difficult lifestyle choice but however we don't need thousands we just need a few hundred goodens that have got what it takes yeah well your your anecdotes of Gillian keegan is is one that i've heard before and it's a brilliant one and i'd love to have Gillian on this show actually so she can tell yeah, it well, she- give her perspective but it is a <laughs> she's, it is... she's probably cursing that day really but but, you see, she's, but she is no she's doing a brilliant job and she is she yeah. is and she is uh the first uh, actual real apprentice we've got who is actually doing the skills and apprentice job and um using her experience from her very formative years yeah but you know she is mature and experienced and i think we those are the sort of people we need to be going out looking for who are grounded with lots of life experience yeah. and resilient. And um, as I say, we don't need thousands and thousands, but a couple of hundred good ones would do, do us well. <laughs> yeah, no, she, she is remarkable. Like I'm, yeah. I am a huge, huge fan of hers. Um, but that is one of many examples where you have played yeah. a critical role, Anne. And yeah. you, you said it yourself, you said you, you almost gave her a bit of a, a you know, I don't know if you use the word apprentice, but apprenticeship, yeah. but you know, showing her the ropes and talking her through it and yeah. and sort of guiding her. But you have done that for so many women. It is, you know, that is really, you know, remarkable. Well, and I know many people are very grateful to you for that. But well, I, I when did really, that start? Really, well, so I feel really privileged to have had that opportunity. I mean, it started almost as soon as we, we launched because from this A-list, if you like, that um, that uh, was introduced by David Cameron, um, I obviously got to know all the women on it and, and we would support them, you know, through their journey. And it, when I say we, it really, you know, we talk about women to women being, sounds like it's a huge organisation, it's really just me. But, um, and, and we, we've slightly refined, I suppose, our offer, if you like, over the over the last 15 years, uh, when we have gone from that 9% to 25%. Um, so I, I think, it, I mean, what I do know from what they've, several women have said to me is, you know, I would have given up if you hadn't been there to pick me up when I mm. failed to get through one particular seat or another. And by the way, look, you know, blo- the men have to go through this as well, but we don't need to worry about them. They've got their own system, which is a lot of confidence and what's part to get, get to pick themselves up and go to the next seat. But so many of them said, oh, I think I'll, you know, take a break and maybe do it next time. I'm like, no, pick yourself up. The next one's got your seat, your name on it. And I mean, I remember, I better not name too many names, but, you know, several people ring me up saying, oh, I'm sorry, I've let you down. I said, you haven't let me down at all. Every, you will get better. Even today, by the way, I had a message from one woman who didn't get selected for a seat in Scotland last night. And um, I said, well, don't worry about that. You know, actually another woman was, but I said, you know, you'll get better at it. The experience that you've had um, will make you much, you know, much more aware next time of the mistakes you make, the things you get better at. And we have done, you know, so we've developed, as I say, our offer to do lots of mock selections, question practice, encourage women to get into small groups and do lots of Q&A work. And, um, and, you know, as I say, speaking in front of a real life audience, which is an invaluable practice because it's terrifying. I've, I've watched 
many women who are now, you know, ministers shaking in with fear uh, in front of a very friendly, um, you know, fake audience, if you like. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that giving them that opportunity and then some one-to-one coaching and finding some MPs who, who support them through the process, mm. um, all of which has start, you know, has made a difference and makes a difference when they get in because they've got a bit more confidence when they're there. Yeah. So Anne, moving on to place, um, what what place has impacted your your thinking or? Well, it, it's difficult because. Um, I mean, it's diff- it, was, it's te- it was tempting to say the Palace of Westminster because I started working there as a PA in 1976, I think, or five. No way. Um, so I have literally spent, I mean, every now and again, I make a dash for freedom, but the elastic band snaps me back. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and there I am, you know, still there today. But I mean, actually, my home, which I'm talking to you from, uh, is, I think, I have a very strong sense of home and I'm incredibly lucky that I'm my my family come from this area and have been here for hundreds of years but my parents bought the home that I'm in today in 1957 and I'm back in the bedroom that I shared with my sister 60 years ago currently sharing with my husband but what I and once it was clear that my mother who um who died earlier this year actually but once it was clear Mm. that she was in her late 80s then that she was not going anywhere. We decided to split the house up and we are now, well, she's, as I say, she died in August, but she, we were four generations under the same roof, but in separate households. And it's such a wonderful recipe for, for life and family life that we've all got space, but we are a commune in, in the way that um, I was talking to an Indian friend and he said, that's how we all like yeah. to live. And it's been such a success. And I just feel that my dad would be so proud that we're, he died in 1981, a long time ago, but he'd be pleased that we, A, managed to keep my mum here and she died at home, which I think is a great privilege to be at home, surrounded by your family. Uh, But that it is sustainable and that that my children and my, I haven't got grandchildren yet, but my sister's grandchildren live here with us and they've got the same sort of upbringing that I had and I mean other people love moving around but I love stability and I've really appreciated it during lockdown that I'm at home and home is a very important place for me it is it's something I've reflected on quite a lot actually because it is it is a very cultural thing and and you mentioned India it's things are very different in many other countries um cultures where um families do live together Um, more and there's so many benefits to that and you know I love my mum dearly and no doubt she'll be listening to this like she does with every episode because she's incredibly (laughs) supportive but you know part of me I think both of us would go slightly the idea of us living together we'd probably go slightly crazy but actually I think it's there's a lot to say for it and I think as a society I could see huge benefits for it um you know you know just sort of practical things as well just stability as you say and and psychologically but childcare and loneliness yes. and 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 yes. passing on wisdom and yes sense of you know um root, you know being rooted in a in a place i think it's i think it's a really lovely lovely well, thing well it it also uh, laura brings us back to another topic which is waste i was on an i was on a um, select committee uh, a couple of years ago on intergenerational fairness and of course housing is a massive big issue um, as we know around the country and one of the experts 
who I can't this minute remember his name, but it doesn't matter, very well known, um, came and, and he said, if we actually used our housing space better, there would be enough for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I said, I put my hands up and I said, well, that's exactly what we are doing. Where it used to be one old lady on her own, we now have 12 or 14 people living in one house. And I did the same in my home in London. Once my children left home, I always had lodgers, not because I didn't, you know, that I needed to in any way, but because I felt it was wrong to live in a house that, where, the, where the space was wasted when mm. there's such a premium on it. And actually, I, you know, I liked it having young people around when I came back from work late or whatever. And then eventually... I thought, you know, time would come. I didn't need all that space and I didn't really want to just live in a youth hostel. But um, so we finally made the decision to move last year after 28 years. But I did, you know, I, I just can't bear the waste of the space um, and not, not using whatever facilities one has. I'm, I'm part of the sharing um, community, if you like. Yeah, that's um, so true. And I love how your Twitter profile um says you know you hate waste of all kinds um, yeah so that's yep. really it's been quite a big campaign. driver for me yeah. so um i i mean that covers for me a multitude of sins almost literally um so i don't care whether you know you're wasting time money energy old people young people um food waste i mean i've been banging on about food waste for years and this is all part of the sustainability agenda if you like which i seems to me to join up all the dots, the, you know, the circular economy, uh, as it's now called, where you don't, I mean, I've always been a, you know, good at recycling and compost, and I try in my own way to live as sustainable a life as I can. You know, I bicycle everywhere or walk. Um, I walk up to the village every day. It's all part of my getting fit to, to fight COVID. But um, so I wouldn't, you know, I don't, don't take the car on, um, on unnecessary journeys and all of that. And I don't want to sound like a goody two shoes because, but I, I, I really care about it. So I've made a vow to never buy anything new again in my life. Uh, mm. That, by the way, doesn't mean to say I will never buy anything from a charity shop or from eBay, but I'm not personally because I, you know, I don't want, I hate textiles going to landfill. I hate, I hate having too much stuff. And I suppose I'm just a bit anti-consumerist in a way, but, um, I mean, I try not to be preachy about it, but I just try and live as sustainable a life as I personally can. Um, so, yes, the, the waste agenda. I mean, food waste, uh, I don't know if you know this, Laura, but if it were a, cu- a country, it would be the third biggest emitter in the world. And it's such an easy thing for people to, you know, get a grip of if they, if they you know, take, concentrate on it a bit more. Mm. But, um, I mean, I got particularly interested. You may remember that I got myself into a little hot water a few years ago uh, when I was on a committee which was looking into food poverty and hunger. And um, at the launch of the report, I misspoke, as I think we now call it. And one of the things I said at the press conference was, um, poor people can't cook. Now, it's also true that rich people can't cook, and it's also true um, that we have lots of choices. Um, But it was one of the things that had come up in 
over and over again in the evidence we'd taken going around the country in you know South Shields and Birkenhead and all the places we'd been is that people who were giving evidence to us said if only we had our traditional cooking skills and people could you know knew how to shop better and budget better and and cook from scratch and I know you know I, I knew I was slightly heading into a minefield here but um, I mean of course I didn't mean to say it and of course I didn't want the you know, the eye of the storm that subsequently I found myself in uh, and on the front page of every newspaper because I compounded it by saying you can have a bowl of porridge which costs 4p or a big bowl of sugary cereal which costs 25p. Um, and this turned me into a sort of Marie Antoinette figure in the, um, in, the, in the eyes of the public or at least of the newspapers. But it did actually, you know, I was right. I'm sorry. I, I was proved right. And the reason I knew that the porridge cost 4p is that I'd done an international development challenge for a number of years, which was living on a pound a day for five days. And, and I'm not pretending for a minute that it was easy to do or nice to do or that it's doable in the long term. And it was a fundraising exercise, obviously. Mm. But it did make me really aware of both food waste and how to try and eat cheaply and well and after I'd been in the eye of the storm which as I say was unpleasant I had a few journalists around and I gave them a, a three-course meal um, for 44p a head which I made as healthy as I could to prove the point and you, you know the, this whole discussion so this is you know the other interest that I have particularly in parliament around healthy eating and lifestyles and obesity and and getting ourselves fit for COVID is it all joins up and is very much part of the waste agenda because we are wasting a generation uh, by not uh, helping them to live a healthy lifestyle. And I think, I mean, I don't know if you saw that Dame Sally Davis, who was Chris Whitty's predecessor, I heard her on a program the other day saying that her one regret was that she had not got the country into better shape to be ready to fight any pandemic that came for them. So to be fitter, um, which is what we need, you know, if we're going to save the NHS in the future, we need a much fitter um, country and population. Yeah. Sorry, I've rambled a bit there. I've got no, there's, the a, there's a lot to unpack in that. And, and for starters, I mean, what did you eat when you did that challenge? Oh, um, well, if you start the week with five quid in your pocket, you have a bit of choice. I, one year I did it by having a pound in my pocket every day, just going with one pound. So, and that was pretty horrible because that was, you know, the first day it was a loaf of white sliced bread. And I think I managed to get some own brand sort of cream cheese. So it was, you know, four sandwiches. And then the next day it was a packet of cornflakes, own brand for 37p. And I think I managed a pint of milk. So, and, you know, and then the bread that was left over from the day before um, and so on. But when I did the, the, um, if you do five pounds at the beginning, you can do, you know, lentil, um, dal. I mean, I did a lot of dal. Actually, mm -hmm. when I did the, the meal for the journalists, um, we did. So you can still get a kilo of frozen veg for 87p, I think. I mean, I haven't done it for a little while, but that, you know, add in an onion and a stock cube and you can make, a, a you know, a bowl of soup for 10p. And I, when I did the journalist meal, we did we had soup followed by dal and rice and followed by um, 
banana custard because I managed to find some, you know, cheap end of the line bananas. But if you know to look for bargains, and um, as I said, the co-op in our village here is very good on its waste policy. And so I'm always rootling around to take, you know, whatever's on the 10p bargain. Um, not because I have to, because, um, because I think it's the right thing to do. <coughs> and I, I congratulate any of the shops that take this seriously, the supermarkets, and are really working on their waste policy. Yeah. And there are many more today than there were when I started banging on about it. And the other thing you mentioned is is healthy eating and obesity, yeah. which of course yeah. has really come to the forefront during yeah. COVID. As you say, you've campaigned on this issue for a long time. Yeah. And governments have made multiple, well, there's been lo- loads yes, of, sort of policy announcements over multiple. and over. <laughs> you are spot on, Laura. And um, our mutual friend, Dolly Tice, has, has been mm. um, helping me with this. Well, at one point I helped her because she said to me, would I help her with um, when she was working at the Centre for Policy, uh, Centre for uh, Social Justice, um, with a with a, um, a paper they were writing on childhood obesity. And when, when I said, yes, of course I'll help, I didn't realise I was going to be chairing it, um, which was quite <laughs> a challenge. But the real challenge about it was actually keeping the food campaigners and the food companies in the room together and being able to agree on anything. And that was quite, uh, navigating that challenge was was difficult um but yes so the government has um well governments of all colors and every shape and kind well shape has um has talked endlessly about dealing with childhood obesity and none of them have actually managed to move the dial at all we're getting fatter as a nation um may, i mean i personally think that processed foods are absolutely absolutely terrible for us as a nation i mean i've actually cut out all incidentally i you know i i was fat myself until about um a bit more than 10 years ago and um i lost yes i lost 28 pounds then and i've pretty much kept it off and um but you have to be you know pretty rigorous but i am personally i've been never know I mean, you are. Oh, thank you. You would if you look at the old photos. <laughs> well, because I've, I think I've cracked it. And um, I feel motivated by, as I say, partly, but if COVID comes for me, I want to be ready for it. And I, I'm, you know, frustrated and disappointed that there isn't, you know, more advice. We talk endlessly about, you know, face, space and hands and all that stuff. We should be talking about getting ourselves fit as a nation. If we want to save the NHS, that's what we have to do. That's what the government needs to start working on is prevention. Um, after all, that's what it was, we call it, a national health service. There's nothing healthy about it at all. It's, you know, all the interventions come when it's too late. So um, they should be encouraging people to, you know, have a healthy diet, a healthy weight, and have, you know, exercise in order to be fit to fight it. Mm. Almost all the underlying uh, causes that you hear about are related to unhealthy lifestyles and I think there hasn't been enough advice from you know the centre on how to do that so I've been you know rigorous I do half an hour of PE with Joe every morning I walk 10,000 <laughs> steps every day um, we have a very healthy mostly plant-based diet here one mm. of my sons who's been with us throughout lockdown has lost a stone didn't really have much to lose actually and he says it's because we have vegetable soup every every day for lunch which I do here yeah um, but I mean just 
okay look I know that people will say yeah it's okay for you you know you're privileged and you've got time and all of that but actually I mean I'm privileged I could be eating you know sirloin steak every day if I wanted to I don't and um uh and so I think I think um you know better better advice on how to how to live a healthy life would be would be welcome and some as I say sustainability in terms of seeing this agenda through and not just talking about it and making announcements but that's the mm. same in so much of government announcement announcement and never seeing it through very mm. frustrating sadly yeah it's interesting that isn't it because mm. yeah coverage is is so is so important um and I guess also ministers tend to move around so quickly um, yeah so yeah yes but that's a whole separate topic um yep yep <laughs> you could talk about for a very long time i'll, I'll come of, back and do another one <laughs> <laughs> um you as well as founding women to win you were also one of the founders of CIFID, conservative friends of international development uh tell us a bit more about that well i mean i'm i'm no well i'm still no expert at all but um what happened i think it was after i'd actually gone to the house of lords but quite soon afterwards and and by the way most people who go to the house of lords we talk about that at this time you know have an expertise that they come in with and i really didn't and i to start with i was kind of slightly floundering around thinking what the heck am i going to talk about and think about and get involved with and um and actually it it does come in here and as I say I mean weirdly nobody else was talking about well as I say food waste I did a, a, a commit I did a um, debate on very quite really quite early on I found a rather wonderful guru called uh, Tristram Stewart who sort of held my hand and talked me through it um, and and explained what the issues were and that that you know once you realize that there's plenty of help available on various things it, it becomes easier so you know obesity was became a thing and um, and international development became a bit more of a thing. And it was because, I mean, I had been slightly involved because I had got him, well, actually my old friend, Richard Curtis, he says to me, he said to me the other day, I think that I got him involved in, you know, Africa and, and, um, and international poverty really. And, no and I way. said, no, I, but I said, no, no, I think it was the other way around. Wasn't it? I thought it was you that got me involved, but anyway, no matter. It was during the um, sort of Glen Eagle summit when the, you know, the, the, the make poverty history mm. campaign really that I got a, a bit involved. I got particularly involved with a, with a charity called restless development, which in those days was called SPW students partnership worldwide. And I did um, my 50th birthday. I did a huge, big event for 650 people who paid to come to my birthday party and I think we wow. raised 150,000 people uh, 150,000 pounds <clears throat> and um it was just a, actually as we were launching women to win because I remember David Cameron coming to it on his last day of freedom before he became leader of the party but um it was really after I actually went to well the first time I really went to Africa when you actually see poverty you know, real poverty for yourself. I think that's a sort of life-changing moment. And since yes. then I have visited uh, a number, <clears throat> I mean, I was in Bangladesh last year and I've been to, you know, quite a few poor countries. Um, although I have a rule not 
do more than one a year because, you know, well, anyway, one a year is enough. Um, and, but I mean, that does change your outlook on it. And you can't, obviously, you can never complain about anything again. But the sort of things that we in the, in the West, if you like, absolutely take for granted, like running, clean running water, which seems to me to be a you know, fundamental human right, but yet there are billions throughout the world still don't have it. Um, for me, you know, education girls is a very big priority. Access to family planning, because for God's sake, if you want to live, to do lift uh, families, communities and countries out of poverty, allowing a woman to have a choice where she, how she spaces her family is, is an obvious uh, priority. And so um, actually Andrew Mitchell approached me and when he was Secretary of State and said, would I consider help basically setting up the Conservative Friends of, there are a number of, as you know, of Conservative Friends of groups, but there wasn't anything on international development. And there had been this very successful outreach program, well, outreach programs, um, social action program in Rwanda, which Conservatives volunteers have been to for a number of years. And there was no, because they'd been teaching and building and doing health work and, yeah. and helping business. And, and it had been, they'd had something like 500 conservative volunteers through this program and they had no, no real home for them no sort of alumnus organization if you like or alumni organization when they came back so it was partly to provide that home for them and we've um in the sort of 10 years i suppose since i sort of got it going um and i seem to be back in as chairman at the moment but um uh it's i think it's had quite a you know an important impact really um, it's you know the go-to organisation for the INGOs and um, for parliamentarians who care about this as an issue, and um, and also to you know lobby the government for more effective aid, which is an important part of it. I think. Yeah, it's still going. Yeah, no, it is still going. And um, yeah. when I was working for Penny, we visited Tanzania and the program there, and met a lot of the volunteers, which was a was. An, an incredible experience that was really really moving and they were there for quite some time and we had different projects as you say some yep. teaching yep. also helping sort of yep. um s small business i mean you know when i say small business it's basically starting from one scratch or two, one, yeah exactly one or two little one-man bands but one i mean i went band, to yeah. sierra leone with with it and and when i was talking earlier about going to poor countries I mean, you can go as a tourist and you can go on safari and you can, you know, see parts of, you know, every country's got amazing things to go and go trekking in Nepal or whatever. But you don't really get to see how people live mm. unless you are, I mean, I was, I did a teaching, I was hopeless at it really, but I did a sort of little teaching job with street kids. Well, I mean, when you actually see the reality of those classrooms and the, we, we did a trip up to the Guinea border, I'll always remember this very vividly and we were hauled across I mean when we got we got hauled across this river we were on a, in a four-wheel drive vehicle um but by a guy who had a um a t-shirt on he was sort of pulling the ropes that, that took the raft across the river and um he had a t-shirt on that says hi I'm Mike from Sainsbury's I'm here to help and I just <laughs> remember thinking god how the hell did that t-shirt find its way from Sainsbury's um to the Guinea border but 
Where, I mean, literally, when we got there, they had nothing. They were drinking out of puddles in the in the road, and they had. Um, they did have a the healthy lifestyle, if you like, because they had there was there was no rubbish because there was no plastic because there was nothing. They had goats, and they had eggs, and they had uh, rice, and they had mangoes, and that was pretty well it. And they were very very fit, lithe people. You could see them, you know, heading off to work the fields every morning with their pickaxes over their shoulders. And I'm not saying that that was a, a you know, a, a nice lifestyle. But the, when we headed back down um, to towards free time, you could literally physically see them getting fatter by the side of the, by, as the as the roadside fast food stands became more and more common. And I thought, you know, it's so visible that we are exporting are terrible diseases and lifestyles to peoples and populations and countries who will not be able to afford the coming tsunami of health issues that is going to be um, as a result of this. I, I felt shocked by that. And every country I've been to since Ethiopia, I'll say, you know, watch, <laughs> sorry, I'm sort of obsessed about it, Bangladesh last year, you can see them getting fatter and they will not be able to cope with it. And um, because their traditional healthy lifestyles are being taken over by you know coca-cola and the processed food industry shocking mm. sorry and another so rant what, <laughs> so um what i mean i can i mean i've read some of your articles on the back of the announcement of 0.7 and the merger and things and um but what what are what are your main concerns following rishi sunak's announcement of well, temporarily lowering 0.7 to 0.5. Well, two. I mean, well, one point is that you know we haven't. We're not going to see the legislation on this until um, probably March or April, and quite a lot of things can might have happened or might not have happened mm. uh, by then. I mean, I understand people's concerns, and I, I mean, I share the concerns about us spending more money than we have as a country, um, and I'm, you know, I'm concerned about that too. But I also, as David Cameron used to say, I'm worried about balancing our books on the backs of the poor. And such a tiny amount of money can go such a long way. And if I thought we were good at spending taxpayers' money here, um, I <laughs> would understand the arguments better. But, um, but I do think that this is an opportunity to really have a look at, as, as well as our aid uh, programmes, and make sure that every penny... Because I think it's confusing for people. It's still confusing a bit for me to understand how my, the pound in my pocket that then goes to the treasury and then to DFID, how does it end up educating a girl in Afghanistan or building a well in Tanzania? How does that happen? And how much of it is left? And how much can we be sure is really getting to help the people it's designed to help? And I think that explaining that better, making sure that the you know, consultancies aren't creaming off too much of it, mm and making sure that there is real value for money uh, in those programs is a, is a very important part of the sort of PR exercise that we haven't done terribly well in the past few years, I think. Mm, yeah. So, Anne, tell us a bit more about life in the upper chamber, the House of Lords. <laughs> what is it like and what was it like? You know, when you, when you entered the House of Lords, how many female well, peers were there? Well, first of all, I want to be absolutely clear about this. I didn't want it. I didn't ask for it. I didn't expect it. And um, I didn't lobby for it. Yeah. Um, so 
I was a bit surprised when I was asked as part of quite a big cohort that came in, in David Cameron's, just after he won. I actually, it's about, it's, well, it's 10 years next month since I actually came, um, was introduced. I was very lucky. I had my father-in-law there, Bernard's uh, father, Patrick Jenkin, who had been a very senior uh, cabinet minister through the Thatcher period. And he was a, he was a very wise person and he I was his whip which I think tickled us both a bit actually uh, but uh, it was very well I mean I, I knew a lot of people because I've been knocking about politics a long time so um, but I mean I did suffer I think well lots of people suffer from imposter syndrome and I still you know I still can given half the chance but um, so it's a, it is a funny old place. Um, I haven't actually been into the chamber physically since last March, by the way, although I have participated a little bit in this very weird uh, period since then, when, once we became a hybrid house. Um, I've hardly been to London, actually, since, since March. And so I have been into the chamber remotely. And, of course, we also now vote remotely. So you can be doing anything, you know, cooking dinner or playing bridge or whatever it might be as the votes come through, which is a rather extraordinary uh, experience. Um, but it does take time to kind of get the hang of it. And, and even for me who'd worked in the building uh, for a long time, um, it's still felt odd um, because you, there's so little sort of guidance really. I mean, I've been encouraging, because I, I've been a whip for quite a long time now, and even last week I was saying to the WHIPs and uh, the WHIPs meeting, we really need to have a kind of drop-in session for newer peers to, to just give tips. This is, you know, this is what I found helpful. This is my way of navigating it. And, um, and I don't think there's enough guidance for new peers, who, some of whom who come from different worlds do find it very intimidating. It is intimidating. Uh, even though people are kind of, you know, willing you, well, willing you on and wishing you well and all of that. There's, there's very little sort of support for, or, the, or I, you know, if I were you, I'd do this or I would follow that subject or I would, um, I mean, they always say sit through a bill and all the, all the stages of the bill. Um, but I'm afraid, you know, within 10 seconds, I'm fiddling around on my phone or doing, I, that's just that part of it is not for me. And I beat myself up about it for quite a long time. And then I thought, but actually I'm being productive in other areas and you can't be good at everything. And I just stick to what you, what you are good at and what you enjoy because um, the, there's lots of opportunities to do that and to promote the causes that you do care about. Um, but it, but it, you know, it's a friendly place and people are very nice across the, across the different benches. It's far less of the Yabu stuff and the women peers. And I, it's partly because I've set them up as well as a, as a group. I mean, the conservative women peers in particular, I mean, we're a, we're a small group because we're still only 24%, I think, of the, um, I was going to say the parliamentary party, we're called Association of Conservative Peers at the ACP. But although we're only a small percentage, we're disproportionately women in the, on the front bench. I think 42% of our ministers and government whips are women um, who, nobody's ever heard of any of them, but they work their socks off they're not in the public eye in the same way as you are in the in the um, commons, but there's some really, really impressive, hardworking, capable women peers. And I'm very proud to be one of their number, really. Are there any sort of bizarre experiences that you've encountered? We love a, we love a fun anecdote. Anne. 
Um, <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> this is a bizarre experience, but um, you, you did an earlier podcast with Jack McConnell. Um, and he was kind enough to say that I was the person, in fact, I was listening to it during a sleepless night and I nearly fell out of bed when he, when he said that I was the person he admired from uh, one of the other political parties. Yeah, and yeah. he sort of explained how we'd met, but when we both fought seats in Scotland in 1987, we'd both been on uh, the Scottish equivalent of Question Time and we were first-time fighters and I was the only woman and I was the only Conservative and I was certainly the only posh white uh, the English girl in the, on this on this panel of first-time fighters and I remember these four young men because it, it was a Nat and a Labour and a SNP and a, well maybe there were only three of them but I think there were no no Liberal Democrat uh, anyway the, um, I remember them all swinging around full of confidence and me finding this experience absolutely horrendous and in my memory because it was all first-time fighters of voters as well in the audience it was a sort of room of hundreds of them all with you know aggressively um <laughs> giving me grief and when anyway roll forward from this hideous experience that i remember them all picking on me uh 1987 um and i got to the house of lords and i sat next to this and i vaguely watched this young man you know, become first minister for Scotland, and we suddenly found ourselves sitting next to each other at um, at a actually one of the poverty uh, international development meetings. And in the, and um, I said to him, "You don't don't you remember me, do you, Jack?" And he said, "And he said, oh my God, that experience made my career because he was only about twenty five, and he'd given me such a hammering in this program." that everybody, it gave him a huge promotion in the Labour Party, which led to him becoming First Minister for Scotland. Anyway, years later, in fact, I think for my 60th birthday, he managed to get hold of a copy of this um, hideous experience. And he said, have a strong drink before you watch it. <laughs> but, um, but, um, uh, but you will find that you, Anne, are not as bad as, you rem as I he remembered and I Jack is not as good as I remembered so I was rather pleased with this and it um and I must say I look very like Princess Di in the crown as we've all seen her more recently and uh, it was <laughs> it was quite a um a thing to watch that again so I mean that's back to you know having friendships across the uh, across the the mm. chamber but I mean that that was certainly one and the, well there have been you know it, it it is a funny old place and um full of you know funny old people and um yeah no, it's a it, it's a very great privilege to be there of course yeah yeah you met you, you you must meet you know especially in the in the house of lords some real grandees well it's um it's a great it sounds weird it's a great leveler it's a little bit like the madam two swords of politics that people who most of the public are sort of forgotten about they're 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 all still there you know whether it's norman tebbit or you know big big characters but it is you know it's a great I mean you still got you know Lord Mackay who was Mrs Thatcher's James Mackay was the, the Lord Chancellor and you know he's well into his 90s and still you know pretty sharp and um yeah so it's a great experience to be part of it but once you start to get a bit of confidence and you know we're all peers literally we're the same level and and um people are very friendly and encouraging really mm. and so just one of the things that 
I didn't ask earlier that just occurred to me now is sort of what kind of reaction have you had from from men um about sort of really trying to support w- women for women to win I know many are very supportive but have you have you seen sort of a mixed mixed reactions well i, I would just like to i suppose you know thank bernard publicly if that's the right thing to do um because he's been very supportive mm. uh and and you're quite right that i mean i think if you are a woman in a man's world that you notice all the time so i count every meeting i'm in i'm like 45 men five women because that's the norm for me but i don't think men ever do the same thing because the norm for them is to have you know 20 men around the cabinet table or whatever meeting it might be that they're in without noticing that there is a, a voice missing uh, from the meeting or, the, or wherever it is they're doing. And, you know, one of my missions is to make sure that men just are aware of it and that they don't have a top level meeting. You know, the quad that makes all the decisions hasn't got a woman in it. Well, I mean, we've, we've seen that um, the countries that have appear to have done COVID rather better are generally, I mean, there's generalization here, but the ones who've done it well are run, run by women. And, um, and so I think that, that once you draw this to men's attention, they're pretty good about it. They say, oh, yes, of course. And it's not because, you know, women's life experiences are uh, you know, we're, we're different. We're not superior. We're not inferior, but we are different. And you do have to have those differences better reflected uh, around the table. So um, I think, I mean, the, mostly the men have been pretty supportive once they've started to think about it, but they should be thinking about it more because it should be an ele- electorally a winner for them. If they start to think that we make better decisions when there are more women around the table, but it, this has to be very carefully handled as well in politics. So, for example, they, the powers that be, the whips, I suppose, made a lot of the new women MPs, PPSs straight away. In fact, all the PPSs were women. And this made some of the men, you know, rather resentful. And we need them on side. We need them as allies. And I think that, you know, there are clever ways of doing this. And uh, we, we made a video some years ago called Daughters, which was male MPs talking about discrimination through the eyes of their daughters. Um, and, and it was quite interesting, the number of them that said, well, I'd never really taken an interest in this until I realized that my daughter was coming up against, you know, blocks in their careers or whatever it might be. Or they would start to say, I want my women, not my daughters not to have any form of discrimination against them in the future. I want them to feel that the Conservative Party is going to be welcoming to them and that, that it's going to be a level playing field and so on. So I yeah. think that, you know, it will change. All of that will change in time. And particularly as people come from normal <clears throat> working lives into a less normal life in Parliament, that, you know, if they've been in a, a supportive environment in the past, they will bring that experience with them into, into politics and into the House of Commons, I hope. Yeah. And so, Anne, what object has had an impact on your thinking and life? Oh, gosh, I don't know about thinking in life, but um, I'd, when I fought that season in 1987, my mum my found Granny's old sort of good luck charms from her election campaigns. Um, 
so it's a sort of link going back to her. She had a black cat with a sort of blue rosette on. She had an amazing handmade blue rosette, which I did wear. I think I wore it to the count last time, actually. Um, and she had a sort of horseshoe that was all, um, I think she used to wear it, have it on the front of her car. But she was obviously quite a sort of superstitious. Um, and I just thought when I was thinking about objects that those which only you know live in a box until election time, but that does have that link back to you know a different world, but one that links with my world as well. Um, so those were quite sort of those are quite precious to me. Yeah, that's that's very nice. So to to round off, I've got some quick fire questions for you, Anne. Mm-hmm. Um, so to start off, um, who is your favourite? non-conservative and as you've already mentioned yes no I Jack mention McConnell Jack. <laughs> mentioned you so I'm uh, yeah, I don't count him let, um yeah well let's try and I'm, pass on I'm the gonna, baton to someone yeah, else no, I mean I you know he's a very good friend but I won't pick him for this one um well the, the person I will pick which are lots of other conservatives I know would pick too is Frank Field and um when Bernard was first elected in 92 he was on Frank was then, as he has been fairly recently, chair of the Social Security Select Committee. It was the first select committee that Bernard was on. And they got to know each other quite well. And Frank asked the two of us to dinner in his flat um, to say for dinner he was for the retiring clerk of the committee. And we got there and he was cooking the whole dinner from scratch. And he was so welcoming. And I said, gosh, look, I can't believe you're doing this yourself. And he said, my, something like, my greatest gift is, is my time because it's what I, is most precious to me and I have so little of it. And that was a very good lesson for me. And then later on, when he became less busy and we became busier, we would have him for supper on a Sunday night when we came back into London from the constituency. And that was a very regular thing we did for years. And um, he's, he's been a genuine friend. I went with him and his old mum, we took her to see Mrs. Thatcher, who was very, um, who his mother, Nan Field, was, was a great fan of. And I, we, he and I have shared a lot of experiences and, and really now a very deep friendship. I know he's admired across all the parties, but he, he was a very special friend to us mm. and, and somehow managed to navigate an extraordinary career in, in politics and survived it. And I'm looking forward to getting back that's one of the good reasons to go back to the House of Lords because he's newly come into it and I look forward to seeing him there. Yeah, great. And so um, another thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, there's Sasha Swire, Hugo Swire's wife, mm-hmm. published a diary, right? Mm. Life as a wife wife of an MP. Mm. Now, you are, of course, also a wife of an MP and uh, obviously a baroness and you're in politics yourself, but... Yeah probably been privy to many many conversations and situations similar yeah. to Sasha do you keep a diary well that's so she's written an um uh, an article in the Sunday uh, Saturday Times magazine today where she yeah. ends by saying you everybody has a duty to keep a diary yeah because it's the little things that are so interesting and actually my father kept amazing diaries from when he went to Cambridge in I think 1929 he was he was born in 1910. And, and honestly, his diaries are the most precious thing we own. 
And, um, you know, if there were a fire, saving daddy's diaries. I, I used to read every year to my mum. I would read about me being born. He did an amazing description of it all. So I, I think she's right. And I, I do, I, I mean, a bit spasmodically, but I have been a little bit better about keeping it during COVID. But I don't have an eye. I'm not a peeps. I'm not even a satisfier. But um, I do see inside things that other people don't see and I hear things and I try to record them but I don't have a view to posterity in the same way it's it's more a sort of record for myself I suppose and I definitely do keep a box of um, things um, invitations to things uh, so that I sort of have the picture of Bernard and me in our old age, sort of sitting, going through these boxes saying, do you remember that and this and that and that event and those people? And I don't know if we'll ever do anything so, with it, but. So if your, if your grandchildren were to go through your diary in, you know, a few decades from now, what do you think would be the most striking uh, entry that, that would make them oh giggle or um, that you can share without causing, you know, <laughs> Family, okay, well, I have to back that. Well, it's a good point. Um, I, I mean, there are certain things about, you know, periods of relationships that um, I wouldn't want anybody to see at the moment, for sure. Um, you know, ups and downs, family stuff. And um, I mean, I, I think Sasha's right that it's it's the little things that are are interesting. And I mean, you know, political books and biographies and autobiographies and not generally speaking terribly interesting because it's this it's the spicy stuff and the interesting stuff and the anecdotal stuff um so i i won't share anything for the moment but if i do ever publish them <laughs> i'll let you know laura <laughs> <laughs> so and we have a question that i love asking uh, my guests is what advice you pass on or what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received well I try and I mean it was it was rather my dad's line but do it now is quite, is quite a good motto to live by um, which is really just sort of don't procrastinate too much I mean tomorrow starts today well do it now I mean <laughs> it, it's not easy because you know we've all got in trays full of stuff at the at the bottom which we know is the difficult stuff and it's the same you know we've all got the emails that you know, you put off replying to and so on. But I think do it now is, is a good line to live by because it's always easier to get, get it done, whatever it is, um, you know, whether it's your tax return or whatever chore it is, it never, it's never going to get easier. So do it now is, is my best bit of advice, I think. Yeah, that is, that is good advice. Not something I always live by, but I do try and live by that. Mm. <laughs> um, and so the other thing I was going to ask you is, you know, as as we've discussed um, and, and, you know, my question about, joking question about uh, your diary, but the fact that you have been married to an MP for so long and mm. quite a high profile one, has mm. that changed your views on Westminster at all? Seeing, seeing it sort of through a very different perspective, you get sort of, you see it through two perspectives, really. I just wondered how that's what you... Yeah, well, how that has changed it, your view on things. I mean, I don't know about being married to an MP. I mean, I've just seen so such extraordinary change since I started working there. I mean, in the as I say, in the seventies, 
I could work for three MPs at once and be their only member of staff and, you know, just have a one filing cabinet and a, <laughs> a daisy wheel typewriter and, and a photocopier that was shared by six or seven of us in the same room. I mean, so, you know, I have seen it from every angle from being, you know, an active member of the Conservative Party, being a member of staff, being a candidate, being married to an MP. And, and then I, I mean, I spent 10 years when Bernard was first elected, um, when our children were small, working for him as his PA, which is not allowed today, but I'd had tremendous advantages for us. I mean, I could do his diary without ever asking him what he wanted to do. I knew all the people. And we were such a, we were a really good team in the early days. I mean, I'd go to, because my mum was a marvellous babysitter, but, and she made, enabled it. And so did Bernard's mother, actually. So I did, I went to everything with him. I went to all the constituents. I mean, I, on a Friday, I'd turn back into Mrs. Jenkins and draw the raffle. And, um, and we were, you know, a pretty good team. But the danger was that it literally came to bed with us. So I'd say, you know, that planning issue in Alsford, have you replied to, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so I think I did become a bit of an old, you know, nag and he never really could escape from constituency life. Um, yeah. But it did, it did bind us together in the early days. And, but interesting, well, it's not really that interesting, but one of the things I've done recently is to help, because I think being a spouse of an MP, particularly if you're far, far away and you don't understand what the heck's going on and what your partner's up to, um, is, is challenging. And of course, it's got worse in recent years or more difficult, perhaps. But um, so I'm quite active in, in fact, on, next week, I'm going to be speaking on a Zoom call to some of the partners and mainly wives obviously because that's the way the parliamentary party is but there's some I've sort of been working with some of the younger wives to set this sort of group up mm. and we're and then I've also helped because the being a male partner of a woman MP what they I think are calling the Dennis Club um is is also <laughs> jolly it's jolly difficult and so one of the wives, one of the new women MPs came to me and she said, my husband is finding this very difficult. Yeah. He, he, you know, we live in a seat we've gained from Labour. They thought it was theirs, you know, but we've snatched it. He's lost a lot of work because I'm a conservative, a lot of his business. He's lost a lot Gosh. of friends. And, you know, one day she's a parish councillor. The next day she's, you know, and as she says, one day she's a parish councillor and chairman of the PTA highly respected in her community. Next day, she's an MP and everybody hates you. And, th and they find that, you know, you get elected, democratically elected. And, and I think that the husbands find that particularly difficult because they want to, you know, they want to support and defend their wives or partners, but they don't have the tools to do so. So anyway, we have set up, um, we did a call for them with Michael Portillo, the first one who ostensibly was talking about trains, but actually just um, giving a bit of encouragement and support. And they are now uh, up and going. They've got a WhatsApp group and um, I don't have to supervise them anymore. Or I think they're, you know, they're okay. And they've got a mutual support group, which is really, really That's important. Brilliant. That you don't feel you're on your own in this rather challenging role. Yeah, no, that makes um, sense. And mm. fi fi final question. What yeah. is your biggest bugbear? in politics and oh i suppose it's really talking about stuff and not getting it done um so politics <laughs> <laughs> a 
I'm joking. Oh, Laura, we're so cynical. Um, <laughs> it's tragic. I mean, one of, one of the greatest compliments I was paid when we got women to win up and going is that so, somebody quite experienced said, he said, so many people talk about doing stuff and so few actually do it. Mm. And, um, and I find that very, very frustrating. And that, you know, to get policy enacted, I mean, that's sort of partly why I never wanted to be a minister, is, but it's like plowing through treacle to get everything it's cleared. Hard. And, yeah. oh, and, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a doer by nature and I just couldn't bear the thought of it. Yeah, I think that's for many MPs when they come in with it and if they're very not familiar with it, very yeah. frustrating. Yeah. And also, actually, you know, one of the things that many people reference and what we like highlighting in this podcast series in particular, and, you know, goes to the heart of the Big Tent Ideas Festival is the need to work cross party. And I think lots of MPs found quite early on if you want to get a change in, you, you often have to work with the other side so yeah well and thank you so much for coming on it's been very enlightening and a real pleasure and me too laura i think i've talked and talked until i've got a dry throat but anyway (laughs) um it's been fun and thank you for everything you do and for being such an inspiration to so many women i'm very lucky to have that to do and lucky to be able to support all of you And look forward to seeing you in the House of Commons too, Laura. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, thanks, Anne. Not at all. Thank you for listening. And I would be hugely grateful if you could help spread the word with your friends and family who you think might be interested in the podcast. And I'd also love it if you could leave a review. And if you haven't already, make sure to become a friend of a big tent so you can join the great events they organise, including the private ones. You can use the code PODCAST to get three months for free.